Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. It is certainly good to have each and every one of you on today. Joining us today is Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. How are you today, Jeff? Very good. Very good. Good. And we also have Joe Works with us in Elmira, New York. How are you today, Joe? Hey, Chase. Hello, Jeff. Good to be with you all today. Good to be with everybody who's watching this afternoon. Yes. So um, if everyone wants to, they can get the Bibles out and be turning it over to the book of Genesis is where we're going to be today. Uh, we're going to be looking at seven questions. Hopefully we'll get through all of them. Uh, seven questions that people who read through Genesis might have concerning the life of Abraham. Uh, uh, I don't know. What's that? I, I couldn't remember the title when I posted it to Facebook. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. So um, I don't know about you guys, but there are different things that jump out to me as I read different sections of the Bible. And in Genesis, in specific to the life of Abraham, there's different things that Abraham chooses to do or different things that are said of Abraham or about different people that are involved in his life that confuse me. Sometimes at the first reading, you don't always understand what's going on. And uh, so it can be really good to talk those things through. Um, and so if you're listening to the podcast, I've got the Facebook comments pulled up over here to my left. If you're on Zoom here, please drop us a line. If you got any questions as you go through as we go through the webcast today, please feel free to voice those. Or if you have questions um, about the life of Abraham, something that's confused you, or you'd like some clarity on, please feel feel free to drop that to us. We'd love to talk that talk about that on the air today. Um, guys, got anything else before we get into it? No, uh, but. Well, I've got a technical question about, you said, well, I'll go ahead and ask. You said you've got Facebook over on the left. Do you have a second monitor over on the left that you can look at? I have my iPad. My iPad's pulled up over here to the left. Oh, okay. All right. So you can, okay. All right. Yeah. So basically to answer your question, yeah, um, I've, I've got a second monitor here. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure everyone listening enjoys to know that too. I, yeah. they, can, they can envision what's happening here. Um, anyway, so as we get into the, um, into the text today, we're going to start in chapter 12. Um, this, of course, is the start of Abraham's journey in chapter 12. Guys, what's kind of the famous thing we, we get from the beginning of chapter 12? What do a lot of Bible students recognize about specifically the first three verses of chapter 12? Promises to Abraham. Seven promises to Abraham. Seven promises. Oh, it looks like somebody has a name tag on that said read my Bible. What, what do you mean by seven promises of Abraham? Well, I think, uh, and, and I'm just being a little bit picky here, but a lot of times we talk about the three promises to Abraham, the land promise, the nation promise, and the covenant or seed promise. But actually, there's a series of promises that are given there uh, throughout that text. Uh, I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing to others. I'll curse those who curse you. There's a series of about seven different promises that he makes to him. And I think that recognizing that seven will actually help us answering maybe some of these questions, but it'll help us to understand a little bit more about the, the text of Genesis 12 through 25 with the story of Abraham. Yeah, for sure. We'll start us off. What, what, uh, what do you want to point out specifically there? um in relationship to those promises you mean or yeah i'm sorry i must have missed what you said i thought you said you wanted to go through the promises more oh no i was just saying that i think that when when we do when we recognize that there are more than just three promises just a general statement i see just keep in mind all of those promises when you read the story of abraham i think it's helpful. gotcha yes 
Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads into one of the first questions I have um, really well. So at, at the I end could, of chapter 12, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. If I could interject something here. I, I'm sure there's, I, I know, I know, I know, I respect your, your study enough, Joe, to know that if you have seen seven things there and you see something that that's going to help us, if we understand that, I'm sure you're right. But just in defense of the idea that there is value in seeing three prominent promises, let me just mention that these promises get repeated to Isaac and to Jacob. And when they do, there are clearly three that are repeated. In Genesis 26, verse 4, to Isaac, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then similarly in chapter 28 and verses 13 and 14. So it's not that you're saying that we shouldn't notice three great promises that are repeated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I think you're calling attention to something I had not thought a lot about, uh, that there's more than that said in Genesis 12. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Certainly the, 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 the three biggies are, um, uh, they, they play a much more prominent role in all the rest of scripture. Isaac, Jacob, to the nation of Israel, to us as God's people and to the whole world, right? Um, the, those three uh, play that role there. I think all seven of them play a role in Abraham's life. Very good. Well, let's let's take a look at maybe where one. No, of let's let's talk about this some more and see how long we can keep Chase from getting to this point. <laughs> I actually thought you were about to keep going. I was about okay. All right, so you got me. That was good, Jeff. So. As we get into the actual text of Genesis chapter 12, we see that after Abraham leaves his country land and goes into this land that God is going to show him, there, of course, is a famine in the land. This is at the end of chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. And Abram goes down to Egypt to sojourn there because of this famine. And when he gets close to Egypt, he tells his wife, Sarai, that you are a beautiful woman. People are going to see that. And when the Egyptians see that, they're going to say, Let's kill this guy and take his wife. Um, but so that this doesn't come to happen, you just say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And so they devised this plan where they were going to lie. They were going to bend the truth about their relationship. And so when they get down to Egypt, everything that Abraham predicted to happen ends up happening. Um, the Egyptians see that she's beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials see her and praised her to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh takes her um, and because she's so beautiful. But instead of killing Abram, what do we actually see he does in return in verse 16? Uh, he, he treated Abram well. He gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He, I guess if he's thinking that this is this woman's brother. He's thinking, wow, I want to treat, I, I want to be in good with the family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, um, you know, Abraham here is well taken care of, but of course, what happens in the verse right after that verse 17, what does it say? The Lord plagued Pharaoh. Uh... Yeah, that's right. He plagued or, or struck Pharaoh is what my translation says because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And, Pharaoh calls Abram in and says, well, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Um, 
you know, was it Pharaoh who was in the wrong in this story or was it Abram who was in the wrong? Well, it seems that Pharaoh is acting out of ignorance. Abraham has lied. But is, is this the one where Joe's got the answer? This no, is, no, no, no. That, that's a different that, one. Okay, then, then I'm going to throw this out. You know, there's a, there's, there's a, a lesson here. You know, sometimes we get the idea that uh, if I haven't done anything wrong, and if God cares for me, then everything should go right. Sometimes God allows us to suffer, maybe even brings about our suffering for our own good. Um, and, and, you know, right now, we, we toyed with the idea of talking about some post-election stuff. There are people who are fretting about which way the election is going to go. You know what, folks, whichever way it goes, even if it goes a way that seems to you to be, oh, no, this is disastrous, God can make good come of it and maybe intending for something good to come of it. Here, uh, he intends something good to come from this. He is keeping Pharaoh from engaging in a relationship with Sarai that uh, he shouldn't engage in. Yeah, very good. And, you know, I think another way I, I think I reconcile this as we go back to those promises that we spent the first 10 minutes of the podcast talking about that I had no intention for us to spend 10 minutes <laughs> talking about was that in verse three, it says, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, God here, he promises Abraham that those who curse you or do ill to you is ill is going to be done to them. And so even though, yes, you see this misleading information on the part of Pharaoh, he's still doing what's wrong to Abram. And God is delivering on his promise by cursing those who, in a sense, cursed Abram. And so I think in part, you see a deliverance on, part, on God's part of his promises. Um, so that's, that's one way I, I think I, I look at that. I think it's interesting in this story, without getting too far off on a tangent here, that Abram lies, he's, he's dishonest here, because he doesn't, he had, doesn't have confidence in the moral integrity of the Egyptians. And so he ends up doing something immoral. Um, and it turns out, at least a surface reading of this story, um, Pharaoh seems to have some sense of moral integrity. Verse 18, what is this you have done to me? You know, you have done something wrong to me. Of course, it's always easy to see, to have moral integrity about what others do or don't do. So I guess you, you could uh, qualify this characterization of Pharaoh of having a sense of moral integrity in that way. But uh, anyway, sometimes we, we, we sell people short. We don't believe that there's as much desire to do right in them as maybe there is. Yeah, exactly. And, and couple that with, uh, I think, a, a lack of faith in God or trust in God. Um, you know, when he's in the land that God has promised him, he builds an altar in verse 7. He builds an altar when he goes back from Egypt in chapter 13 and in verse 4. He's in Egypt. He doesn't build an altar. He concocts this half-truth, which is a full lie. And uh, then uh, I suspect that receiving all of these animals and so forth in exchange for his wife um, uh, probably laid pretty hard on, on his conscience even. 
um, uh, and all this. I, I think it was just a lesson for Abraham to, listen, you, you need to trust me in, uh, in the things that I've told you. I also just, as we're, as I go on a side note here at this point, I see so much um, value in some of the lessons the Israelites would have learned as they read stories like this, to see the falseness of the riches that Egypt has to offer. Um, here there's a famine and they go into Egypt to try and find comfort, but this ends up being the wrong place. They need to go back to the land where God is. Uh, in chapter 13, this is something that's always stood out to me. When Lot is given the choice of land, it tells us that he goes and he looks up on the other side of the Valley of the Jordan where it's well watered. Um, and it's like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as far as you go to Zoar. And of course we learned that that land wasn't so great. Um, it wasn't the land of God. And then, of course, you've got the Egyptian handmaid of Sarai, uh, Hagar, that they go to put their trust in again, and that doesn't end up working. Um, so there's this continued theme through Genesis of putting your faith in, in the falseness of riches or Egypt um, that I think stands for a bigger lesson for a group of exiles who keep saying, man, we should go back to Egypt. Um, so anyways, I think there's some cool connections we're, there. We're chasing a couple of rabbits here, but I'm not sure I caught what you said there, but in Genesis 13, 10, when Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. That's the passage you were referencing, right? Yeah, just a second ago, yep. So, so my take on that passage, and maybe this is what you were saying, but I think what the passage is saying at this time uh, that the story of Abram and Lot unfolds, it was well watered and it was a beautiful area. But Moses is writing the book of Genesis many years later. And by the time Moses is writing it, fire and brimstone has come down on that land and destroyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so Moses is, is fun. It's kind of funny to read that we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't think of it as a beautiful land. And even Moses in his day, when he's telling the story, he has to say, this was a beautiful land. You got to remember, this was back before God destroyed it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, uh, just one more rabbit there. Um, and I don't know if I heard you say this, but you're, you're, you're spot on with Hagar. Um, you know, every, not every time, but several times when she is mentioned, it, it, it specifically says, Hagar, the Egyptian. Right. The book of Genesis is in many ways serving as a foreshadowing of the nation of Israel. And, and again, that's helpful. That's why we have these selected stories for us. There's a lot of things that happen in Abraham's life that aren't told here. These are told for the Israelites to benefit from. Well, and so that this really, these aren't rabbits we're chasing. They're relevant to our discussion because when we read these stories in the life of Abraham, Sometimes it can be really helpful when maybe there's something in the story that confuses us to try and zoom out and see the bigger picture and learn why that story is being told maybe for the first audience, like the Israelites in the Moses' day and so forth. And so these really aren't, aren't rabbits we're chasing. They're relevant to our discussion of how to answer difficult questions from the text of Abraham's story. I, I, I won't quote this well. I probably need to try to dig it up and get the exact quote at some point. But Doug Folk used to say, uh, when you see something in a text that appears not to be relevant, it's all the more reason to study it. That there's something, if, it's, if it seems odd in the text, then that ought to be screaming at us that it's pointing probably to something else. Again, that's a really poor paraphrase of what he used to say, but uh, it's really helpful to think about. 
You know, an, another question is, as we really follow what Joe just said, uh, another question I've had as I read through Abraham's story is why does God keep promising Abraham a son over and over again, but take so long to deliver on that promise? It seems kind of odd to me. So in chapter 12, we already read and talked about the seven promises there. Do you guys want to talk more about that? Are we, are we good there? No? Okay. So we've got the seven promises. Of course, I, I jest with these guys. And in chapter 12, in, uh, God again says in chapter 14, through Melchizedek, you know, um, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Uh, in chapter 15, you see him getting blessed again, and God talks about these, these descendants he's going to have, and be like the stars of the heavens. And it happens again in chapter 17, whenever God comes to him and gives him the covenant of circumcision. And of course, in chapter 18, when he goes and tells Sarah, um, but it's not until chapter 21 that Isaac is actually born. And so it takes a long time for this promise to be delivered. Moses was, or sorry, Abraham was old when God promised this to him to start with. And he was really old by the time God delivered. Guys, why would God do it that way is my question. Several reasons come to my mind. One is several things that happen in those intervening, in, the, in, a, in that intervening period need to happen. The birth of uh, Ishmael, that's going to be something that's going to be used in the New Testament, the contrast between Ishmael and then the eventual son Isaac. Um, and uh, to, to, to explain the difference between a natural born child and a child who is born by the promise of God. And uh, in Galatians, the fourth chapter, Paul's going to develop that thought. There are other things that we could point to. I'll, I'll let you guys mention some of the other ones. Just, just one thought uh, I think is consistent, particularly with the New Testament. Um, but during this time, this 25-year span, right, from 75 to 100 for, for Abraham, if I've got that right, yeah. um, what God is doing is testing Abraham's faith all throughout this. Is he going to be faithful? Is he going to trust or not? Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Hagar, he doesn't. The act of circumcision, he does. Um, uh, you know, there's different times where, where he does differently. Um, but when you think about that whole idea of testing and, and making Abraham wait for this promise as a way of testing his faith, that's what God does with the nation of Israel, both when they're in Egyptian bondage and while they are living their, their life as a, as a nation, and with the coming of the Son of God as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's practically impossible to find any text that talks about faith for very long in the New Testament without, having, without it saying something about Abraham. Yeah. Near Every lengthy text on faith mm -hmm. and then includes Abraham, the story of Abraham. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's what we're seeing is this test of faith. Yeah. We are, God does that with us then. There's also the fact that it, it seems to be important that when Isaac is born, that he is born by an act of God. And that's going to be all the more clear if Abraham is not just 75 and his wife is 65, which is amazing enough. But if instead Abraham is 100 and his wife's about 90. I, there is something to be said, and, and it's especially the Old Testament, 
the Lord loves it when the odds are stacked against him. <laughs> um, you, you see him being glorified in those moments. And that, that isn't just true in the Old Testament. That's true of the New Testament, and it's true even of today. God is glorified when things that look so insignificant and impossible by his power are able to be made amazing. Um, and of course, I think about individuals that being true of today, um, that the world looks at and says, you know, they're going to be a nobody. There's nothing they can do to make an impact in this world, but the Lord can work through people like that. And I think you see that in especially the life of Abraham as he prolongs delivering on this promise. It isn't because he's enabled, but because it's a way for him to showcase his power um, and to, to show his um, ability to make life from what appears to be nothing, um, especially in this, in the case of Sarai. So anyways, yeah, really cool, big picture stuff. I think with this question that we see about faith and our need to trust the Lord, despite maybe not seeing the promises coming to fruition quite yet. Thoughts or comments on, on that question, guys? All right. So, uh, third, third thing that I have here, as we come into chapter 16, we referenced this story already, but this, of course, is before God specifically promises Abraham that his child is going to come through Sarai. Um, and Sarai, of course, comes to Abraham and asks him, um, or tells him, rather, that he can go into her handmaid, Hagar the Egyptian, and she gives her to Abram as his wife. And so he goes into Hagar. Hagar conceives, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai, of course, she turns and she's mad at Abram. May the wrong be uh, done me be upon you. It was her idea, but here she is mad at Abram. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Um, and as a result of this, Sarai treats Hagar harshly. And Hagar flees from her presence. Guys, do you understand why Hagar might flee? Why she might flee? Yeah. Well, she's being treated harshly. <laughs> yeah. I, and that, that's the point I'm trying to make is I, I sympathize with Hagar. Here she is, just this, this, she's a servant to begin with. Quite possibly, I've wondered if she was taken back in chapter 12, whenever, you know, Pharaoh gave all those gifts to, to Abraham, but here she's a, she's a slave. She's been given to this man as his second wife. Uh, she conceives by this man, and now her, her, mate, or her, her boss is mad at her. Yeah, maybe it's time for me to leave. Maybe it's time for me to get out. Um, I sympathize with that. But then, of course, at the end of the chapter, that last half of the chapter, the angel of the Lord, first time we see that, the angel of the Lord appears, and tells her, uh, well, first asks her the question, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, you need to return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Why, why would the angel of the Lord say something like that? If we understand why she left, why is it important for her to go back? Maybe let me add one more layer in this. In the end of verse four and the end of verse five, uh, Sarah becomes despised in Hagar's eyes, right? Uh, 
Hagar despises or makes light of, I think is one of the definitions of that word there. Uh, she views Sarah as less important than she is. She's the servant, but she's viewing herself as, as greater than, uh, than Sarah. Um, so she does, she's not completely innocent in this whole story either. Yeah. Um, she it's easy. That's kind of easy attitude. to understand in a way. Here she's been the one who's always been told, mop the floors, gather the firewood. I guess they weren't, it was right. dirt floors maybe, but whatever. You know, she washed the clothes. Yeah. And so she's just the servant, has to be doing everything that Sarah tells her to do. And now after all this time, it's Hagar that gets to present Abraham with a son. And that was the great aspiration of a woman to give her husband a son. And Hagar gets to do it. So she gets, you could say a little uppity here and says, you know, in her, in her behavior, hey, I, I am the one. You couldn't do it. I am the one who's doing it. Right. And you were going to make a point though. And I jumped in. Yeah. No, no, no. That, that, that's exactly right. I appreciate the way that you said that. So I think that when we see all three of them are not acting as they should completely, we're seeing the humanity of, of the Bible. I think here we ought to recognize that in our own lives, sometimes when we can point a finger, this is almost like a, a, a Garden of Eden situation, right? Everybody's probably thinking the other people are doing wrong um, and everybody has some guilt uh, to go around. Uh, but I would just suggest that the Lord sending her back is not a part of a, uh, of a punishment or something um, by sending her back, she's going to be taken care of because those that Abraham blesses are going to be blessed. Yeah. Uh, and so by sending her back, the Lord is providing for Hagar and Ishmael to, to be provided for, to be taken care of. You know, there, when we went through this here at, uh, at the church here in Harrisburg, one of the sisters here made a really helpful point. Um, you know, when the angel of the Lord comes to, to Hagar, he doesn't say to her, look, you know, you, you go back home and all of your problems are going to be taken care of. It's going to get a whole lot easier. Um, that's not what he says. He says, look, I'm with you. Um, of course, she eventually will call the Lord. You are the God who sees down in verse 13. But the, but the angel of the Lord said, you still have to go back. And when you're a disciple of the Lord, it doesn't mean all your problems are just going to go away. It doesn't mean that um, all the wrong that you've done. You, you don't have to undo. There are some things that you have to submit to. Um, and I thought that was a super helpful point uh, from the text that in Hagar's case, she still had to go back to her mistress. Um, and not all of her problems were going to go away. But the biggest difference, obviously, is now she knows that the Lord is with her. And that as her son being a descendant of, of Abraham, he is going to be greatly blessed. I mean, that's what verses 10 through 13 talks about. Um, and so anyways, I, I think that was a really helpful point that a sister in Christ recently pointed out to me from, from this story. Good. I like that. You know, it might be helpful. I Sometimes when I'm studying with someone and we go through this text, they, they seem to, at least maybe it's my imagination, but it seems that they, they kind of get hung up on this verse in verse 4. Uh, when she saw that she con had conceived her mistress was despised in her sight. And Chase, you, you, you're using the word mistress here. In modern English, mistress has a certain connotation. And maybe it'd be helpful to explain what the word mistress means here. Yeah, go ahead. Well, okay, it's, it's, the, it's the counterpart to master. You've got a master and a mistress. Uh, it's, it's a woman who is your superior, lord and lady. Uh, as a matter of fact, the New Testament word for Lord is curious, 
And when the Septuagint translators translate this passage, they use the feminine of Lord, of Curious, Lady. So it's it's the woman who was her boss. I think you, you even used the term boss a little bit earlier. Yeah, I, I was opting for boss just because that's a little more clear. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's that's super helpful to point out. Sometimes it can be confusing because, um, yeah, it uses it again there at the end of verse 8. Well, there's another example of it in 2 Kings 5 where Naaman the leper, uh, Naaman the Syrian captain, has a little maidservant girl from Israel, and Naaman's wife is the mistress of that little mm. maidservant girl. Gotcha. And so uh, she goes and said to her mistress, uh, I wish that my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria. So she had a master and a mistress, Naaman and Naaman's wife. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's helpful to point out. All right, guys. Well, that as we kind of work through the life of Abraham here, um, chapter 17 is the next chapter. And when Abram is 99 years old, uh, so he was 86 at the end of chapter 16, 99 now. Um, so what, uh, 13 years later. The Lord comes to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram falls on his face. God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Um, I was reading a commentary that said, uh, I, I really like this. He said, Abraham, Abram being renamed Abraham to this point, uh, now meaning a father of a multitude of nations, would be like calling a six foot five, 350 pound guy tiny. Uh, this is from Nathan Ward's commentary. Because, I mean, at this point, when God renames him, he still has zero children. He has none. And yet God keeps promising him this. Uh, of course, he has Ishmael, but he doesn't have this great nation yet. Um, and so it would be super hard to hear this, but the Lord says, there's going to be something I need you to do for me to establish this covenant. And that, of course, is the covenant of circumcision. Um, God says in verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants throughout their generations, and this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and all your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. He shall be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. The servant who's born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, um, everybody is going to be involved in this, is what he goes on to say. But of course, the big question, if you're the first time reader of the scriptures, is why does God choose this? A man cutting of his genitals to be the thing that shows his trust and, and solidifies this covenant between him and God. Are there any, is there anything else in scripture that might help us see the bigger picture of circumcision? So he mentions here at the end of uh, verse 13, my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting co uh, covenant. And so the, the idea, the, the point is, obviously, the, the cutting in his genitals 
you know, may seem extremely extreme or whatever, but it is, it is where life is going to come from. It, it is where Isaac is going to come from. Uh, and so there's a, there's a significance to that. Um, uh, Abraham saying, I believe this, that covenant then is going to be carried forth for one of those, the most prominent promise from Genesis 12, uh, the, the seed promise. Think about that, just that very concept of seed promise. Um, uh, and so uh, the, the covenant is, is going to be recognized by the Israelite males, uh, and that's why they're going to be cut off if they don't partake of that, um, uh, that action. But yes, there is a greater picture then uh, that we can think about from passages like uh, Deuteronomy 10 and uh, Deuteronomy 30, uh, Deuteronomy 30 um, and uh, a couple of passages in the New Testament uh, as well. Um, oh, now I've lost my memory on that. Um, yeah, Colossians 2, 14 yeah. through 17, thereabouts. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, thinking about that the, the circumcision of your hearts uh, is what God was really wanting from them all along. Uh, but that doesn't discount this physical action. God was wanting that spiritual cutting as well. So, yeah. and yeah, go, go ahead, ahead, Jeff. No, go ahead. In either case, I was just going to say that this is something that separates this group of people from the rest of the world. Um, and so as we think about the spiritual application here, cutting around of your heart, um, the circumcision of Christ that Colossians 2 talks about, this is a, a select group of people who've dedicated their hearts to the God, uh, to the Lord specifically that separates them from the rest of the world. And maybe so there's some helpful. really cool big picture. Yeah, maybe it'd be helpful if in, instead of speaking in terms of a cutting, think of it in, in terms of removing a covering. Um, when, when you think about the idea, well, he's got these passages in Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter that you mentioned, Joe, uh, verse 16, circumcised in your heart. Um, and then there's uh, Romans chapter two, where it talks about the circumcision of the heart. Uh, he's not a Jew who is outwardly, uh, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew as one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart. And then there's Acts chapter seven, where Stephen rebukes the unbelieving Jews who are attacking him. And he says in verse 51 of Acts 7, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. All right, stiff-necked is a, is a neck that's not yielding. And uncircumcised, if circumcised is a removal of, of flesh that covers something, and then if we think of that in terms of heart and ears, if we've got something covering up our heart, covering up our ears so that we're not responsive to the Word of God, to God's will, then we're uncircumcised of heart and ears. There is an interesting correlation to this idea in just the word that's used for uncircumcised in the New Testament on various occasions, and it's a Greek word, akrabustia, and there's debate about where that comes from. It appears it comes, and some dispute this, but uh, historically it's been thought this is where it comes from, and it looks to me like this is where it comes from. It comes from two parts so that the meaning would be closed-end, so somebody who is uncircumcised, they have not had that flesh removed, they have a literal closed end. 
And so then you start thinking about that idea of closed up, my ears, my heart closed up. And so, you know, there, how, what all God's reasons were, who knows, but it's not unusual that God takes a physical thing or a physical act um, and uses its properties to com communicate a spiritual message. So the Israelites were to remove a piece of flesh and we are to remove that, that, that was a covering and we are to remove that which covers our hearts or stops up our ears, closes up our ears so that we can be responsive to the word of God. Just think about how consistent that is. You mentioned Acts 7.51. In Acts 2, they were cut to the heart in, uh, and cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In Acts 16 and verse 14, regarding Lydia, it says that the Lord opened her heart to receive those things mm -hmm. with, with his teaching. Um, uh, in uh, Luke 24, um, it talks about how their eyes were opened to, uh, to the Lord. Um, I, I think that's very much the, the meaning behind or the significance behind uh, that physical action, which was to lead the Israelites and the Christians in the New Testament to this spiritual uh, greater uh, understanding and, and application. Very good. Well, um, let's move on to our fifth question on this. Unless, uh, Jeff, do you have anything you want to add on that? I was just wondering how many we've covered so far. Yeah, so we've gotten through four. So we, I don't know if we can get through all of them today. But um, question five, why does Abraham question God in chapters 18, 22 through 33? Is this the one you said you had an answer for, Joe? Yeah, uh, so in Acts 18, um, uh, we're looking at... I mean, uh, Or Genesis 18, I'm sorry. Uh Abraham negotiating with God, right? Um, right. Uh, you know, for 50, for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20, for, for 10. Um, uh, and so I'm not exactly sure what your question is. Um, can you Let's why does it up. explain, explain the story. Remind people what the story is. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah go ahead, Joe. Go ahead. No, no, you, 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 you Chase, this is you. So basically, um, this is in chapter 18 of Genesis, after the Lord has come with two different men, angels, if you will, they've come, they've eaten in the household and in the tent of Abraham, and they've told Sarah that she's going to have this child, or at least she overhears it, and she laughs, um, and then they call her out for it. Well, then the men look up, and they look down towards Sodom, and Abraham's walking to send all three of them off. And then the Lord has this conversation with himself, this is the way the text plays it out. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Of course, God's talking about his want to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It describes their sin as being, being exceedingly grave in verse 20. And he says, I'm going to go down now and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so then these two men that are with the Lord and with Abraham turn to go down toward Sodom, and Abraham is still standing there with the Lord watching them go. And then Abraham begins to ask God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he says, if there's 50 people there that are in the city, will you sweep it away and not spare the city for the sake of the 50 people 
who are in it, the righteous who are in it. And um, he goes on to say something that I think is, is challenging for me in verse 25. Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Um, and God, of course, says, if I find 50 righteous, then I will spare the whole place. Well, then they do this thing back and forth until Abraham whittles the number, number all the way down to 10. I guess my question just came from a genuine reading of this and feeling like Abraham is stepping out of line uh, when he is questioning God like this. Seeing him, you know, questioning him like this feels like something you should not approach God about. Well, it's, it's um, interesting. So, Abraham even knows, he seems to know he's, he's pushing the envelope a little bit with his questions. Um, when you, when you uh, look at how he asked some of these questions, let me get over there real quickly. Uh, so Abraham yeah, says, I have ventured to speak with the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes, <laughs> right. but he's going to go a little further. And then in verse 30, oh, may the Lord not be angry. Uh, and I shall speak, suppose 30 are found there. So he knows in his own mind, he feels like he is going out on a limb to keep asking. Yes. Yeah, so why, why does he keep asking? Why does he keep wanting to whittle the number down more and more and more? Why isn't he just satisfied with God being the judge? So let's play a scenario, Chase. Um, God comes to you because you are God's friend and God wants to reveal something to you that he's getting ready to do in Harrisburg. And he says, I'm going to destroy Harrisburg or, or maybe Lawrenceburg, Kentucky or, or someplace else where you have loved ones. You think you might plead for them? Yeah, you know absolutely. I, yeah. I would think no. I would start immediately thinking about all the people that I love there and thinking about, um, all these people that I consider to be righteous, good people. Why, why should they have to die for the wickedness of everybody else? And so I think that's exactly what Abraham is doing. I think it's just showing his, his love for mankind. Um, in, in some ways, he is exemplifying the, the character of God here, desiring that, that man be saved. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's not just sparing the 50, but it's sparing the city because of the 50 even. Uh, right? Um, uh, that, that's a remarkable thing. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Abraham showing that same character. I think that's what makes them friends. Yes. And it's not, and it's not just, okay, I, if, what, what if there's 50 righteous there? Would you destroy the whole city for 50 righteous? God says, no, no, I'll, I'll save it for 50. And then you get to thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm not altogether sure he's going to find 50 righteous. Uh, you know, I, okay, what, what, what if we almost get 50, but we're lacking five to get there? And so one of the things this negotiation reveals is Abraham's lack of confidence that there's going to be a whole lot of righteous people found in Sodom. Yeah. And so to me, the thing that strikes me more about this text is that he stops at 10. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, what number would you stop at for any particular city? I, I'm not sure where I would go with that. Um, I, I have a little chart, if I could th throw this up, that might help explain a little bit about the 10. Uh, let's see if I can uh, do this without 
throwing myself off of uh, and I, Zoom. Yeah, there it goes. Uh, can you see that? Yeah, give us the, yeah. If, uh, yeah, there we go. go. All right. So why stop at 10? Uh, think about Lot's family here in Genesis 19, the, where Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. He says in verse uh, 12, Lot's sons, so plural, that would at least be two, therefore. It says sons-in-laws in verse 14, that would be at least two. And if they're sons-in-laws, that means that they are married to Lot's daughters. And so that means that there's, they have sons-in-laws. Nobody wants sons-in-laws without daughters, I guarantee you. Um, so that's four. Uh, and then the two that are here, the two that are in his house, the two daughters that are in his house, be two more. And then Lot's wife would be one more. And then Lot himself, I, I think that to me, this is at least a plausible uh, thought for why he reaches 10. He has 10 family members in the, that, uh, in that city. Yeah, I've, I've never thought about breaking it down like that, but that's super helpful. And this is something that's pretty consistent through, through the scriptures. I mean, I even think about whenever the children of Israel are finally going to march over into Jericho, and they send the spies in, and of course, they find Rahab, um, who ends up being a believer. And I've often begged the question, for, for what reason does God even send those spies in? There's really no reason. Um, but there's someone righteous in there and God is going to get them out. Um, and that, that certainly right. Uh, lot is described as righteous lot in, um, in the new Testament. So anyways, yeah, cool stuff. Um, we're out of time for today. Maybe we'll get to the rest of the questions on my week, a few weeks from now, but thank you all for your time today. God bless. We'll see you next Wednesday.